Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Christian History and Ideas with Dr. Nirmal Das and myself, John Coleman. Welcome, Dr. Das. Great to be here again, John. Great to be here. We may have bumped the the double digits now. This may be episode ten or eleven. I have to I have to wow. check the notes, but we're we're plugging away now. That's great. That's great news. <laughs> Having spent a good lot of this year looking at uh, the 19th century and various uh, topics related to that, last episode and this, we decided to turn our attention to a different time and a different place, uh, but the same faith, and that is uh, looking at uh, North Africa and uh, looking last episode at Oregon and his life and times, his, his theological interest, and we tied in so many critical aspects of that chapter in church history. And we encourage you viewers to please review that as a uh, prerequisite for this episode. Uh, knowledge is expensive, and one of the ways it's expensive is in time. So the more you viewers can put into a topic, the more you will comprehend what it is we're on about. Um, one of the guests I had near Mal on my show, we, we were talking about the, the degradation of knowledge that, that this show is trying to rectify amongst others. And you'll get a kick out of this. Um, the, the man said that he got in a fight with someone over, it was, it was a, a biblical topic and the the woman said you should check you should check a concordat and the man corrected her and said do you mean a concordance but she was adamant she was adamant you must check the concordat and um, i'm sure you see that in the media in a, in a thousand different ways there's just a a real decline on on bread and butter knowledge Oh, big time. There's no base knowledge left, unfortunately. There's no base knowledge. <laughs> so viewers, um, build up that base knowledge and check out the last one because we laid out Hellenism, we laid out the situation in the Imperium, getting into different nuances in pre-Constantinian um, empire dynamics and, and Christianity. And um, with that, we're going to get into our main uh, entree, and that is St. Alexander of Alexandria. And we're going to have probably more quotes. We tried to get some quotes in here this time uh, and every time. Um, but I thought before we get into our main one, which will will lead up to Nirmal with the creed, um, um, I'd like to actually read his selection from the Martyrology. Sure, yes, that would be good. Right. And uh, Nirmal, for people who aren't familiar, uh, what is the Roman Martyrology? Why don't you go into it, John? Um, let's give a brief summary. Sure thing. Um, it's a listing of saints. It's just a brief bio. And um, at Alexandria, Bishop St. Alexander, an aged man held in great honor, who succeeded Blessed Peter as bishop of that city. He expelled from the church Arius, one of his priests, tainted with heretical impiety and convicted by divine truth, and subsequently was one of 318 fathers who condemned him in the Council of Nicaea. So there we have uh, an interesting, you know, focus on what what subsequent historians and, and churchmen choose to remember. But obviously, a figure of of theological importance and one in this episode we'll see very crucial at Nicaea. So one of the great topics that's going to concern this uh, conversation of Nirmal's and mine, of course, is Christology. Who is Christology, or rather, um, what is Christology, and what are the dynamics that we're looking at? And a good place, Dr. Das suggested, uh, to do that, now that we know just a, a synopsis from, from the martyrology there, a good place to look is the final working document of the Council of Nicaea, of which uh, Alexander was a part of, and that is the Nicene Creed, very often said on Sundays. I think in, in um, later generations now, I think there's the option to use the Apostles' Creed on penitential yeah. seasons. But um, in any case, and this isn't boilerplate. This isn't boilerplate in the liturgy. This is very important. 
<laughs> I know it can be that way sometimes, but anyway, um, bear with me and, and let's keep an ear out for the theological nuances as we circle back, Nirmal and myself, to Alexandria, picking up in the 250s and going from there. All right. So we say, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, born of the Father before all ages, God of God, light of light, true God of true God, begotten, not made of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, uh, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven, and he became flesh by the Holy Ghost of the Virgin Mary and was made man. He was also crucified for us, suffered under Pontius Pilate, and was buried. And on the third day, he rose again according to the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead in his kingdom. There will be no end. And I also believe in the Holy Ghost, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who together with the Father and the Son is adored and glorified and who spoke through the prophets. And one holy Catholic and apostolic church, I confess one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, and I await the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. And we talked about this last time, the, the fact that at this era, at this moment in church history, uh, churchmen and, and, and congregations are at a point where they want to get deeper into what the faith means. We even looked at that with, with Oregon and his book, um, The First Principles, and this attempt to really come up with a systematic world view. So St. Alexander of Alexandria, whom we also noted is uh, oftentimes called Patriarch and even Pope is as the title there. And um, Nirmal, before we get into him, maybe we can, I, I imagine we're going to, well, we're, we're certainly speaking to English speakers in the Anglo Anglosphere um, and, and probably people from North America. So we might have people from, from various um, religious backgrounds, maybe non-Christian or um, from uh, later reform movements. So can you speak uh, to the idea of apostolic succession um, and, and in Alexandria and why and how in the early church these different cities became prominent, because that, that's very important to understand. This and it's maybe a consciousness that uh, a lot of modern Christians don't have who might be listening or not. Exactly. I, what we're looking at are, um, at this time, two important cities uh, where uh, Christianity was uh, most predominant, uh, most influential. One was in Antioch um, and modern-day Turkey, and the other was Alexandria. So our focus is going to be Alexandria. Now, the interesting thing is that both of these cities are producing not only uh, ecclesiastical structures, bishops and whatnot, um, but also uh, 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 theological tracts, theological um, understanding of what all this stuff is supposed to mean. Um, because at this time, there's a lot of questions being asked about Christ and, as you said, Christology, uh, soteriology, what does salvation through Jesus mean, um, and so forth. Why is Jesus the Savior, known as the Savior, etc., etc.? So these questions are popping up, and what the church needs to do at this time is to provide, you know, real answers to real questions. Um, and these two cities play a very important role. So in, within that structure that they establish within each cities, there are certain, um, as we know, as we call them, apostolic successions, i.e. various bishops um, uh, or leaders of the church um, that are going to provide guidance to the flock, to the faithful. Um, and this guidance is through succession, as we know. And of course, this is about laying on of hands, as we all know, and this uh, succession goes back to earliest times to, uh, to Peter, uh, to St. Peter and so forth. Um, <clears throat> so both of these cities uh, claim that sort of structure, ecclesiastical structure, where bishops um, inherit 
um, uh, this position, for lack of a better term. And this position is meant then to be uh, one, uh, it's a teacherly tradition, uh, where these uh, positions, I should say, is a these are teacherly positions, in order to instruct the flock in, <clears throat> in proper guidance towards a proper faith, not misunderstanding, not um, <clears throat> heresies, um, not misreadings, uh, not, you know, personal, I feel this about that worse or not. Um, so proper guidance as to what the faith is all about. And both of these cities are very prominent. Um, and in our discussion uh, with Arius and Arianism, uh, one of these cities that we have not looked at, which is Antioch, is going to be playing a very leading role because it's going to become a kind of a, a place of controversy. Um, so Alexandria and Antioch have um, uh, the system of bishops. And here I'm trying to you know, speak with people who haven't uh, background in this. Uh, so there's a system of bishops or um, um, gui guides, for lack of a better term, to the church who will provide the authority uh, to, to the faithful that will help them understand what it is that they believe. Um, and also provide them answers that pagans and others might be asking them difficult questions. Um, and that is that is the beginning of, of, of what we would call systematic theology, the step-by-step -step approach of understanding the faith so that it becomes something viable, livable in the real world. <clears throat> Excellent. So prior to Alexander's uh, ascension to, to the, the Sea of Alexandria, as we indeed read in the Martyrology there, he's uh, prior... Um, Prior incumbent to him was was Saint uh, Peter, not Saint Peter from the New Testament, of course. And within his diocese, there was a, and, and we pointed out just the the gravity and the importance of of Alexandria um, before. Uh, there was a, a a very capable and and um, I'll say put it as politely as possible, theologically curious. Um, a presbyter or priest, and that was Arius, a man um, a bit farther west in, in uh, modern-day Libya. And um, it, it remains for a, a dramatic, uh, maybe writer in, in the audience to, uh, to come up with a good, uh, a good story like this, because you see Alexander and Arius uh, were certainly born around the same time, you see. And um, depending on, on the dating, they actually were born on the same uh, the same year. So uh, we have a figure of orthodoxy, the Pope of Alexandria, the, the patriarch, and then a figure of, of a great energy and, and dynamism, um, but uh, one of, of uh, heterodoxy. Yes. And they will uh, come to blows theologically and, and famously uh, in Alexandria, but especially in Nicaea. And uh, Nirmal, uh, unless you uh, would like to take things in another way, maybe we can lay out some of the Christological um, tensions that, that are the background to Nicaea. I think that would be the best way to do it. So uh, what's going on is that um, uh, since Christianity is located in the East, um, um, there is this big problem of understanding just who Christ is and what does it mean when we say Jesus is incarnate, i.e., what does that mean when we say that he is, uh, that he possesses both human and divine, that he's both human and divine. And um, one group is going to be, uh, in order to grapple with this uh, issue, one group is going to be saying that uh, Christ is one and he was fully human and fully divine. Um, but they couldn't agree on how this worked out, what this meant, uh, how, much, how much of him was divine, how much of him was human, uh, and which part did what. Um, and they also believed that um, uh, the other people that held contrary views were, uh, you know, were um, somehow undercutting uh, what Christ really was. So the big question of the day um, and this is going to be the, 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 the biggest question that is going to be confronting Alexander is about the nature of Jesus. Uh, is he fully human, period? Or is he someone more than that? Um, is he going to be fully, you know, God? 
or is it going to be fully human? Is he a combination of both? And if either of the, you know, any of these three, what does that mean? Um, and it's a very serious controversy. Why is it serious? Well, <clears throat> at this time, through various, um, you know, like, like we said, through the various uh, philosophical traditions, what's going on is that um, if you're going to be saying that God has come down on earth to, to save us, um, you have to then start explaining uh, the nature of God, um, the nature of incarnation, uh, the birth of Jesus, and the nature and the purpose of his work, of how he does save. So we're talking about, uh, in a way, three things. Uh, we're talking about divinity, the divine. What is the divine? I, actually, I should be more clear. We're talking about three definitions. So what is the divine? What is God? Who and what is Jesus? And what, and what is salvation? Um, and these questions are very, very important. And notice they're still uh, important today. Um, but at this time, various people are coming up with different answers. Um, and uh, the traditional answer, of course, is one that is uh, Orthodox Christianity. And I mean Orthodox not in the sense of, you know, Russians and all that sort of thing, but um, Orthodox in the sense of prevalent or mainstream Christianity. Um, and that is that Jesus is both, of course, incarnate, uh, which means God come down to earth, which means that he is fully divine and fully uh, human. Um, that is the traditional uh, understanding of Jesus. Arius and people like him, and there were others, of course, um, are saying, well, wait a minute, um, because this leads us to all kinds of philosophical problems. Now here, what we talked about earlier in our first hour, this idea of Christianity grappling or coming to grips with uh, Hellenistic philosophies uh, that are floating around, Arius is a product of that grappling. Uh, he is now trying to somehow manage, negotiate um, Christian faith uh, with the realities of his day, which is um, a world filled with uh, uh, Hellenistic philosophy, uh, especially Stoicism, Epicureanism, and Platon, uh, Platonism, um, uh, Platonism, you know, with, with Plotinus. Um, Aristotelianism, interestingly enough, has kind of died out at this time, but Plato is very, very important. So Arius, Arius is trying to uh, negotiate Christianity with Plato. Uh, he's trying to negotiate Christianity with Epicureanism um, and Stoicism. Well, not so much Epicureanism, but especially Stoicism. And this leads him into all kinds of directions, which we can, uh, you know, look at in a minute. Um, so it's this um, age-old problem: How do I manage the world? How do I, as a Christian, manage the world that is somehow completely uh, unaware of what uh, the consequences of my faith are? And his answers, of course, are going to lead him into serious error, uh, as we will lo uh, look at later. And one um, point I'd like to bring up is um, in, in the uh, perpetual battle to, to sharpen pencils and, and to put a, a, a finer point on things, very often one will hear in popular sermons and popular textbooks and so forth, Arius just believed Christ was a man. He basically denied the divinity of Christ. And in a sense, that's true, but in a sense, that's not what, what it's really the crux of the matter. Um, much like um, we have a, a wide array of this stuff down here in, in America near Mal, and, and you may as well. Um, we have groups um, that are actually very nuanced in this way. So I'm going to mention them only in order to understand this. So um, certainly Muslims have a similar Christology, Jehovah Witnesses, Black Hebrew Israelites. And as as Arius, so what I'm saying is that um, the first chapter of St. John's Gospel, as well as certain epistles, very clearly identifies uh, Christ with the Logos. And the nuance of the battles of Nicaea and, and, and um, modern groups is that is the wisdom of God, which is identified in the Logos of God, um, is that created or uncreated? And um, uh, it's beside the point. There's a very 
in 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 uh, what became Judaism as well as Islam, there's a very similar discussion over the religious texts, whether they're created or uncreated in, in heaven. But in, in Christianity, um, we'll just use as one citation here uh, Proverbs uh, eight uh, cha- verse twenty two, which I recite. Um, do keep in mind that the wisdom literature we talk about Hellenism and so forth in the Jewish community there, the Hebrew community, um, that that Alexandria was was uh, the place where a lot of that wisdom literature in the Old Testament was written. And so this this has a much earlier pedigree of just the meditation on, on God's wisdom in the world going back even before Christ in Alexandria. And um, in Proverbs 8.22, um, uh, I don't want to just quote it off memory here. Uh, the Lord for I, I will quote it off memory. The Lord formed me the beginning of His works, and there is the crux of Arian. It's not just a matter of and uh, of of um, like the the um, Salvation Army or something, or Christ is is just a a beneficial teacher, um, but but it it is much more nuanced. Whether Christ existed before time or he was the first before the earth was created and time itself, he was the first creation of the subsequent creation so it's it's a it's a different uh concept than i think is is kind of um clumsily just kind of regurgitated in pop catholicism and pop orthodoxy exactly and i think um, that subtlety uh is is the problem here also for um uh for alexander of alexandria um um, you rightly point out that it's not simply saying, oh, Jesus was just human or he was, you know, he was not God and all that sort of thing. Um, what Arius is really suggesting, um, what Arianism um, later on, as it's referred to, is really pointing its faithful to is a very strict monotheism. Um, and this monotheism, and this is the question that Alexander then has to ask uh, answer, is that is that is that monotheism? Is it um, biblical, or you know, for lack of a better term, or is it philosophical? Um, and that question is going to be creating um, the Council of Nicaea. This is the argument here. What is the point here? Um, are we going to be looking justifying uh, scripture, or are we going to be managing uh, philosophy uh, that is out there? So, as you rightly suggest, it's not simply uh, Jesus is a human being or a prophet and all that sort of thing, but the very nature of of Jesus. When is it that he comes into being? Um, And this notion of being, which is a philosophical concept, uh, very urgent at this time, uh, what does that mean um, when we're talking about divinity? So we're really talking about um, what, when, when they're grappling with these issues, uh, and they may seem like to people, or you know, ordinary, they may see people, you know, be like how many angels on the pin of a, you know, head of a needle and all that sort of thing. Um, it may be inconsequential and unimportant and even silly or whatnot. Um, but we have to look at uh, the implications of these questions because the implications are huge um, because then what happens is that your understanding and definition of God becomes, uh, well, becomes problematic. It's no longer as you have been taught or been teaching, uh, but it becomes an uncontrolled, uncontrollable, um, even personal uh, kind of personally defined uh, deity. And the problem then is that there are a lot of those kinds of gods kicking around at this time. So is um, the god of the Christians like Serapis? Uh, is it later on like Mithra? Um, and you know, notice that trend we've talked about earlier in our diff- different shows. But this is the problem that these early Christians, early bishops um, at this very early time are facing. So. What Arius is doing is not simply, um, you know, um, uh, trying to realign Christianity with Greek philosophy. He's presenting Christianity a serious challenge, one that it has not had before. Um, There may be, there are lots of studies as to, uh, you know, the the early history of Arianism, where it comes from, 
was there Arianism before Arius and all that sort of thing. And there might have been, uh, probably were. <clears throat> but, um, you know, um, the point in our discussion is that it doesn't really matter because what we're really confronting with Arius, who somehow uh, summarizes and makes the whole argument more forceful, um, and this is going to lead to all kinds of different, um, um, you know, problems later on as well. But what he's doing is that by looking at Christ in a particular way, um, as creation, he is then aligning the Christian understanding of God with the pagan uh, Hellenistic concept of God, i.e. God as demiurge, God as unmoving mover, all of these notions that the Roman world, the Hellenistic world is very familiar with. So he no longer becomes a Christian God, but he simply becomes that God of the philosophers, as they, you know, as he's referred to, um, which is the more familiar, um, the unseen mover, um, you know, the grand mechanic, uh, you know, that sort of thing of the world. Uh, and that is why Alexander and all these other uh, people in the Council of Nicaea uh, come down so hard on Arius, uh, because he is uh, veering Christianity into another mode or trying to. Um, and that mode is something that contradicts scripture completely, um, contradicts the nature of God as described in scripture, and even contradicts the nature of Christ um, uh, as described in scripture. And this then, of course, means that Christology is not what it is supposed to be. Soteriology or Christ as Savior is not what it's supposed to be. It becomes something else. Um, and so what we then have to end up doing then, if, if Arius is right, then we have to Hellenize Christianity. And why this is a problem? Well, uh, just northeast of the city in the Jewish quarter, this is the big struggle the, the Jews, the Hebrews are having. Hellenistic Hebraism versus the other Palestinian Hebraism, yes. which is the one that's going to be, which is the correct one. And the Christians do not want to enter into that mode of, of argument, yeah, because they know where all that led, um, you know, and it's it's a simmering problem that's going to be there. Uh, so yeah, there is there's a complexity here. It's not simply saying, oh God, you know, Jesus is not God or something like that. Um, there's a lot of complexity because it involves then uh, a lot of um, abandonment of uh, traditional faith. You know, in this month's um, postal, there's a few articles on on Islam, and um, you know, in those articles, they mention how um, that you know, a, a Christological again, what what seems to average Joe going to get his coffee around the corner seems to be um, a pointless discussion. How something like Nestorianism, a, a later heresy, um, about the um, the nature of Christ and and um, what exactly was was uh, incarnate and this, that, and the other, how something relatively minor uh, in, in terms of average Joe on the street um, actually has huge consequences and how without the Nestorian understanding of Christ, it, it would have made Islam's reception possibly much harder in, in different areas that it entered into. And when it comes to, so that's a parallel I set up and, and returning to the main thrust here, when it comes to Arianism, something else that's important um, to keep in mind is that for the um, the synthesis or the baptism, uh, perhaps, of, of the best of classical philosophy, which we've, we've intimated, um, that, that Christianity will ultimately work about, there, there are many novel and and unique ideas to Christianity, and one of those is um, this concept of an extra state authority. And if you believe that, okay, you believe Arians and, and what we would call Catholics now. Um, and that's a whole other, we can get into the nitty gritty of what the different factions called each other at that time. Because Arius had his own terminologies. He didn't use the word Catholic or Orthodox and whatever. But um, if, if okay, so Arians and Catholics can agree that Christ uh, creates the church. But when you have an imperium, 
and a push comes to shove on faith or morals, and this will, of course, be an increasing theme throughout uh, the early medieval period and, and going forward, this, this collision. If the word who makes the church is a creature, and the state, of course, is a creature, that brings the authority of the church down to the level of the state. And it's been observed by, by historians that amongst the Roman population in the 3rd and 4th century, that Arianism was most popular amongst the upper classes and orthodoxy most popular amongst the average people. And the conclusion certain historians have made is because if you play out the Christology, it knocks the church down a peg and makes it unequal to the state in terms of uh, who says so. Exactly. And what this also does is that it calls into question the very concept of the church. Um, if church is simply, um, you know, um, another institution uh, like, you know, politics and, and whatnot, then it has a very limited role to play in the life of the world, in the life of humanity. Um, and because it has a very limited role to play, therefore it can be manipulated, guided by larger forces and so forth. Um, so the church in that, in the Aryan um, context cannot have an independent uh, existence um, outside you know, uh, outside society, outside uh, uh, politics, I should say, um, uh, rather than society. Um, so when uh, Arius is postulating all these concepts, he is, what he is also doing is, and I don't know if he is, uh, you know, was intentionally doing this. Uh, this has to be clear because, you know, I don't want to um, impugn him with all kinds of things, uh, but rather the consequences of what he is suggesting. Uh, and this is what um, you know Alexander uh, is fighting against, and people like him uh, in, in in Nicaea. What he is then uh, laying the groundwork for um, is um, um, a subordination of the faith to politics, and this has been the grand struggle. Because remember, Alexander himself is coming out of um, um, uh, well a bloody past because the persecutions, uh, he's living under two emperors who are, you know, seriously persecuting and killing Christians. Um, and this question then, and, and the other serious problem at this time is that because, you know, a lot of Christians are simply, when they're hauled up to the to the court um, to say, are you a Christian or not? And um, they say, no, I'm not. And they say, okay, prove it by doing this or that sacrifice. And they do it. And afterwards, they come out and say, well, yeah, I'm just pretending I'm still a Christian. Um, and this is the question that Arius is dealing with and Alexander is dealing with. What do you do with this kind of management of oppression and murder and torture and bloodshed and all that sort of thing? Um, and this then, of course, brings in the question of who and what is a proper martyr uh, and so forth. Um, so. On the one hand, you have Arius who's saying, well, manage the world and, you know, uh, do what you can to get by and live. And then you have the, uh, you know, Alexander and, uh, um, you know, mainstream Christianity, for lack of a better term, um, suggesting, no, you have to live against the world, contra mundum. Um, and if you're not living against the world, you're not really fulfilling what the church and the, and the faith are all about. Um, so it's, there's a larger issue here. Uh, do, pay, do Christians simply become part of the pagan acceptance of everybody's faith um, and encourage that, i.e., do, do Christians become multicultural or do they become Christians? Um, so this uh, struggle of multiculturalism, by the way, is not new uh, in, the, in this regard, uh, though we're you know, pushing a you know, our own terminology onto the past. Uh, but this idea of pluralism, uh, maybe that's a better term, um, of religious pluralism that is part of the Roman world, uh, and in which part does um, Christianity inhabit, that is the struggle. Um, and so uh, within the context of persecutions, within the context of uh, people, you know, going to court and denying and then coming out and saying, I was just pretending, and I want to go back to church again, uh, because, you know, they would not let it. Once you did that, you could not come back to church 
you had, you know, uh, you had uh, basically um, uh, given up on your faith. Um, so, and Aria says, you should be coming back to church. And Alexander says, no, you can't. Um, there's all the, these issues involved here with this idea that Arius is, uh, you know, propounding uh, and pushing forward. Um, and they have serious consequences for the way the faith will turn out. Um, and as we have seen, as we will see in history, Arius' version of the faith is a dead end. Um, it's going to lead to, you know, a bit of life. Um, in the Goths are going to convert, you know, Ulfilas and his translation of the Bible. They're going to convert to to uh, Arianism. Well, why? Because that was the fashion uh, and the time in, Byz in, in Byzantium, uh, mm -hmm. as you said. It's, it's more popular with the upper classes. Uh, and of course, that's where all the military and all this sort of thing is. So the Goths who are part of the milita militaristic system are going to convert. Um, and they convert and wander off and remain, you know, Aryans for a long time. Um, so, but they all end up in a dead-end situation. And I think Alexander and people like him in Nicaea recognize this problem and recognize where the where the consequences will lead of this, both these very radically opposed, in a way, faith structures. So uh, the definition of who Christ is, aside from... Uh, salvation and spiritual matters has serious um, uh, cultural consequences, political consequences, uh, and as we will now, now call it, historical consequences. Um, so Alexander's consequences are what has created the West. Arius's consequences are what has created the East as we understand it, because it is out of this context that Islam is going to emerge, because Islam is, uh, in a way, a descendant of Arianism. Um, it is part and parcel of that Christology, because Islam is you know, a different form of Christology. It isn't a rejection of Christ at all. Um, it's, a, it's a different understanding of what Christ is. And that's the consequences. So it's a choice that these early church fathers made. Uh, is it going to be the way the, West, the East went? And unfortunately, in the, uh, the church in the East, as it was called, um, and here I would like to suggest that perhaps Nestorian wasn't, as it's, as you described, a heretic, um, but he is part of the Church of the East, and he was Orthodox, as we would say. Um, so I would suggest that Nestorius wasn't like Arius. Um, he was, um, and this is the struggle that the Church in the East is going to have. Mm. Arianism is going to predominate, pre predominate, and they're going to destroy the Orthodox Christianity. And out of that destruction will emerge Islam and all that, um, uh, which Islam is going to be the conglomeration of all these various uh, Arianistic sects uh, that are kicking around. Um, and e notice the East has a different trajectory because it chooses Arianism. You know, by and large, it chooses that. Um, whereas the West has a different tra trajectory because it chooses Alexander and Nicaea uh, and the Council of Nicaea. Um, so, you know, these are very real world um, uh, problems here. These aren't esoteric, you know, um, you know, egghead sort of things that, you know, people are going to sit around and talk about. These have very serious consequences. And those consequences are still prevalent and present in our own day and age. And notice we're re-engaging them in different terms, but we're re-engaging them with today even. So Arius hasn't disappeared. Um, you know, he is now part of Islam that is now something that people are engaging with um, and in various ways uh, because that Christology has re-emerged again and has now confronted um, the Council of Nicaea again. Um, so I find that dynamic very interesting. Uh, and as you rightly pointed out from the very beginning, it's not simply, oh, he said Jesus wasn't God and all that sort of thing. It's, it's something more complex uh, and more uh, profound in a way. And as we move our discussion now to the, the climactic um, confrontation at Nicaea, I think you brought up a, a fine point there, Dr. Das, about the fact that as people meet in this town, which is a little bit north of, of what was called um, Byzantium, as the bishops are being summoned, the Pope, who's, who's I think he's 80 at this point, so he sends his legate, um, Damascus, I think it was. 
And as the different bishops are trickling in, in, in uh, what must have been a horrendous travel uh, situation uh, in the fourth century, um, we do want to keep in mind the intensity of things, um, just uh, not just on an intellectual or academic level, but whether they, the, the factual be Arian or Catholic Orthodox, all of these people are coming out of the Diocletian persecution and previous persecutions. And we do want to keep that in mind. There are these, these um, beautiful um, anecdotes told about the, the, the physical degradation of the bishops that, that you know, they went through the, the fire of, of persecution. Literally, they went through, some of them literally went through the fire of persecution. Some of them are missing feet. They're missing hands. They're missing noses. They're missing eyes. Um, I think there's there's a vignette of Constantine, you know, kissing kissing the um, I think the missing eyes of one of the bishops who was so crippled. Not only was he blind, but he had to be led in on a stretcher, and that also needs to be understood. And certain of those adherents of Arianism also bore those those literal scars. So the the intensity of the debates uh, must be understood in the context. Exactly. I mean. Um, the two emperors that are, um, I think, um, that are doing the persecution during the time, lifetime of uh, Alexander is, uh, just to be clear, um, one is um, uh, Galerius, I think, yes, Galerius, and um, um, who is the other one? Um, Maximinius. Uh, Maximinius. These are, these are the two emperors that are doing all the persecution. And the, these persecutions are, as you rightly pointed out, rather horrible. Um, and because of that, um, um, because of this bloodshed, um, for these people, these, these are very real issues uh, because it's a life and death matter here. Uh, it's not simply, you know, like you said, some esoteric, you know, university conference, you know, that, you know, with lots of coffee and tea and, you know, gonna sit around and then you go home. Uh, this is something very real because remember, they're gonna go back to um, their neighborhoods. Now, as a footnote for these persecutions, because I know uh, there's a recent book out, well, not so recent, uh, Moss, I forget her first name, Moss, Cynthia? No, I can't remember. But Moss's book on persecutions and martyr, martyrs that they weren't so, that it's all made up. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, it wasn't uh, anything real. Um, oh, but it got, it got press, and you better believe it got press. I did, certainly did, huge. Um, and anyway, um, within the context of those kinds of recent understandings of martyrs, uh, what we have to keep in mind is that um, the Council of Nicaea would not have met, very simply, if the persecution and the torture and the killings weren't real. Um, they would not have had that urgency, as you described, if the persecutions and the and the and the killings and this bloodshed was not real, why? Well, for the very simple reason is that uh, what Arius is doing, and this is the psychological aspect of reading of Arius, what he's trying to do also is lessen that cruelty of the Romans against the Christians by making Christians be more like Romans. He is hoping also to somehow bring an end to the persecution. Um, so there is that angle as well here. And um, so Aries is saying, let's work it out so we live in harmony with our pagan Roman neighbors. Alexander and company are saying, well, sure, we could do that, but the best way to do that is to be better Christians, stronger Christians, and not give up on our faith, because that is the point here. Uh, and it doesn't matter if we get killed in the process. So once you, on the one hand, you have um, an attempt to, um, uh, you know, an attempt to get rid of the persecution, uh, to somehow align yourself in such a way that with the Roman authority, so persecution becomes unnecessary. So Arius' um, Christology, Arius' theology is geared towards that, uh, which is somehow to make uh, Christianity palatable to the Romans, whereas Alexander and company uh, view is that it's not about palatability, it's not about, you know, living with the world, 
but living against the world and not giving up on the faith and the truth that we have. Um, and the minute we start doing that, well, then there's no faith and truth. And of course, um, you know, history has judged that those two positions. So there's also that subtlety. Um, and this is something that people like Moss somehow miss uh, in their analysis when they say that uh, the martyr martyrs were made, the, the stories of the martyrs are all fabricated uh, to win sympathy or whatnot from the Romans. Um, and these kinds of councils, and there's others as well, uh, give the lie to that approach uh, that has you know, become very popular in current scholarship. Uh, because what we're dealing with are people trying to manage criminality and violence that is being inflicted upon them just because they have you know, a certain kind of an outlook, faith, uh, and so forth. Um, so I would also add that, that little footnote as far as um, you know, the, the, the persecution that's happening at this time. Yeah, I'm shocked. I'm I'm totally shocked that an ac a modern academic would would uh, choose a splashy topic to get press, and um, that people would would just latch onto it. That's that's amazing. And, and, and she claims to be good, a good Catholic as well, by the way. So there you go. Um, kind of the times. Um, <laughs> Nirmal, I'd like to. Uh, Turn our closing um, discussion to homeosis and um, the the um, the play out of of Nicaea, which in a sense is the play out of um, Alexander's uh, orthodox um, Alexander's orthodoxy and Athanasius's orthodoxy, and and a way too many letter A's today. Let me <laughs> but I do want to point out. Um, this dynamic which we referenced in our first recording that um, it's not just a matter of, of at this hour of church history maintaining theological orthodoxy, but also there's this dynamic which every religion comes across um, that, that comes to any, any um, popularity, and that is its relation to the power structure. And that is also happening here. I know I talked about that in the previous uh, discussion too, but that does need to be brought up. So it's not just internal turmoil, but there's um, tremendous temptations of power, tremendous um, factionalism that's going to come with that. And, um, and there are going to be tribulations one way or another, um, whichever way Nicaea went. And the other thing I'd like to say before we, we pop off into the council itself is that um, this concept, which became uh, somewhat popular in, in elements of the Reformation, that there was a falling away and a paganization of, of Christianity. Um, with that generation of men, uh, with that argument regarding specifically the Council of Nicaea, um, given what those men had gone through for orthodoxy and had gone through, um, that is not plausible, given the amount of, of personal suffering, the participants, the 300, I forget how many the martyrology, 318 bishops or whatever, um, that they went through. That maybe something we could, we could, that's another discussion for another day, a thousand years or, you know, over the time. I'm not arguing that either, but at Nicaea, because that's a very popular idea you get, that there was a paganization at Nicaea, um, that is most unlikely given the participants. Exactly, exactly. And given the purpose of the, uh, uh, the, the, the council and the end product, which you just read, uh, which is, you know, the, the creed. Um, so that creedal um, committance, uh, exactly, the creedal, um, you know, commitment uh, to, to the faith is the point of Nicaea. It isn't there to make it into a pagan thing or whatnot. Now, if Nicaea had been, if, if Nicaea had been not successful, then we would have had a paganization of Christianity, and Arius would have won out, um, as we see happening in, say, the Gothic context, where Arianism remains, and then, of course, in the East, uh, where Arianism remains and evolves and becomes what it does, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, so um, the the point of the the council um, is to and by the by the way, you, since you mentioned them, the bishops coming out of persecution, I would also suggest that they're living within the persecution at this time. Christians are being killed all around them, and they themselves are. Some of them are going to be kill, getting killed uh, later on. Um, so this is not, you know, uh, something exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, 
So with that, uh, very quickly, what I would like to do is read something written by Alexander himself, um, which is his very interesting summary of what Arius is teaching. And what he does is that he basically takes lines, uh, and, and this is the only kind of um, survival of a lot of what Arius wrote, um, and he's presenting this to us, uh, to the to the to the audience, uh, as it were, uh, in, um, uh, in in Nicaea. And so this is his summary of Arius, and I'm, now I'm reading. <clears throat> now this is not Alexander saying things. This is so. This is the voice of Arius uh, via Alexander. So God was not always God, quote, God was not always father, but there was a time when God was not father. The Logos did not always exist, but he had been made out of the non-existent. For God, he who is, has made out of the non-existent him who did not exist. Wherefore, there was once when he did not exist, for the son is a creature and work. He is neither like the father according to his essence, nor is he by nature the father's true logos, nor is he true wisdom, but he is one of the things that have been made and that have been originated, but he is inaccurately called logos and wisdom, since he himself was made by God's own, um, uh, sorry, uh, was made by God's own work or volition. Um, sorry, I'm getting mixed up. Uh, by, I'm jumping ahead. Uh, he was made by God's own logos and by the wisdom that is in God, by which God has made all things and him also. Therefore, in respect to his nature, he is mutable and changeable, as are all rational creatures. This is talking about Jesus. And the logos is foreign and alien to and isolated from the essence of God. And the Father is invisible to the Son, for neither does the Logos know the, the Father perfectly and accurately, nor can he perfectly see him. For the Son does not even know what his own essence is, for he has been made on our behalf in order that God might create us through him as through an instrument. For he would not have been made to subsist if God had not wished to make us. Um, so Jesus then, very simply, uh, summary of what that is, Jesus then uh, is uh, a greater reflection of God's creation or of us, uh, greater, uh, greater in the sense that Jesus as Superman, Ubermensch, um, uh, God's you know, prime example of what you can be. Uh, here's an example of what you can become. <laughs> uh, so that's what Arius is saying. And this is Alexander's summary of him uh, at, at, the, at the council. Well, the word that a lot of the council revolves on, of course, the council runs from uh, May to August of five, uh, 325, and uh, they didn't get in the medieval habit of having councils go on for, for decades, and even the modern, you know, modern one of going on for years and years. They, they kept it crisp, and, and part of that's the travel, uh, <laughs> the travel difficulties. <laughs> um, you make that trip once, you probably won't make it twice. Uh, in any case, the council, uh, you know, deals with other things, the dating of Easter forever, a, a problem. Every year we have to go through this thing about, oh, they'll come up with a third dating for Easter that everyone can agree on. There's nothing new there. And um, also the, the, uh, an, another schism, what's called the Melitan schism. But the real uh, focus of Nicaea um, will, or in popular memory and in its profundity, there are 20 canons of Nicaea which deal with rather mundane church governance um, topics, which, which would be interesting to talk about. Um, but the real thing, as we've talked about here, is, is um, the word, is the word eternal or whatnot. Let's talk about, as we close up this episode on, on St. Alexander of Alexandria, let's talk about homeotus. Okay, good. Um, homeus, uh, you know, this, this term, the Greek term I won't use, it, it means um, of the same essence, um, homoousios. Um, and uh, homo and, you know, usias, the two words combined. Um, and this idea of the same essence um, means that um, is the logos co-eternal, i.e. it is always and was always with God. 
um, i.e. it is not something that is created uh, by God. Um, so why this term is important uh, for Christianity and what its you know, um, real-life uh, applications, uh, why this is important for real-life applications. Um, and by the way, very quickly, let me just quickly define it. I've neglected to do that. Um, homoousios simply means of the same essence, which means that Jesus uh, is Logos, is God, uh, e e you know, eternal, not created, and all that sort of thing. Um, so basically, uh, you know, the traditional understanding of Jesus as God. Um, and um, incarnation means God coming down, uh, which means he's unchanged, even though he takes on flesh. Um, his essence is human, sorry, divine essence remains. Um, so what are the real, you know, life uh, ramifications of homoousios or this idea of the same essence uh, of, of Jesus? Well, very simply, um, within this time period, uh, and of course later, very simply, uh, it suggests that um, when we are believing, when we come to believe in Jesus as uh, Savior and, uh, and Lord and God and all that, when we're believing in Jesus, what we are doing is uh, uh, understanding our life on this planet, on Earth, uh, human life, the life of the flesh, as transitory. And that's a very important concept for uh, Christian culture and Western civilization, by the way. Um, so the minute you say that my life here is transitory, it's not forever, um, and I must focus on something greater in order that I may achieve eternity. So this life is a preparation of sorts into our step into eternity. Uh, what that's, what this does is that it brings into the into human consciousness the idea of morality. It's a concept that is kicked around by Socrates and Plato and and a bit of like with Aristotle, but they never fully define it. Now, why this is so urgent for the for the Council of Nicaea is that they are aside from all these other things that they're doing, they're also defining Christian morality. What is Christian morality? I mean, it's not like Aristotle. No, it's not like Plato. No, it's not like um, you know uh, Plotinus and the other characters that are floating around. This is not what this is about, because Greek morality is about understanding uh, goodness. Uh, in order to have, you know, um, good consequences. Uh, that's what this is all about. And those consequences are here in the here and now. But what the Council of Nicaea stresses is that morality has eternal consequences. So you may be a good human being, but you may or may never have a million dollars in your bank account. But that doesn't mean you stop being a good human being. You may be a good human being, but the Romans may th still throw you to the lions. You may be a very good human being and a good Christian, but ISIS, the new ones in the Middle East, are going to cut your head off, you know, and you are going, still going to be a good human, Christian, uh, moral human being. So the consequences of morality, this is something very important for the West and Christian culture, the consequences of morality are not uh, in the here and now. The consequences are for eternity. And that dynamic of life as engaged both here, but also concerned with eternity is a new kind of consciousness. And that's gonna create a very different kind of civilization known as the West uh, as we know it. Arianism is gonna create a very different kind of consciousness in the East where Nestorianism and Orthodox Christianity is destroyed and the descendants of Arianism take over, i.e. Islam, um, and um, you know, Hinduism and, and Buddhism and all this sort of thing. These are all Arianistic uh, concepts, uh, which we can get the other into later. Um, so these real world consequences of these ideas is very, very, I think, front and center for these people uh, because they're, aside from all these other things, the Council of Nicaea, through the concept of the homoousios, is defining what personal morality is, what it means, and what it will achieve um, uh, for not only individually, but for um, the group, the culture, the nation, um, you know, the, the people uh, collective 
or the or we might call the communion of saints. Um, what is what are the consequences of that? So morality is a big concern here as well. And you know, we've talked so often. We we've had the discussion of of Act seventeen, for instance, a few few months ago, and. Um, the the preservation of, of classical civilization on one hand, but I think the takeaway with Alexander and his protege, the more famous um, Athanasius, is that we also see as, as the church's relation to the power structure changes at this hour, that, that um, not only is the best of the classical world preserved for the coming medieval world that's that's ever so slowly um, morphing into itself, but also that stubborn Hebraic spirit um, that we see in Alexander and, Ath and Athanasius, not necessarily ethnically, um, no. but like many things in the New Testament, uh, Israel, uh, in a spiritual way, and we see that stubbornness there in those men and and the, that doggedness uh, yeah. and um, you will accept as much as possible from the pre-existing uh, orders, but uh, there's still that um, that grittiness there. Um, and there's all that would be a whole other fun show to have about the the subterfuge at, at the Council of Nicaea, the the melodrama, yes. the uh, this sort of thing. But uh, I, I would introduce. You know, we spent a lot of time bringing out. Uh, Christian Christianity's preservation of the of the classic world, but there's also this Hebraic spirit that really asserts itself. Exactly, and I think it's uh, the Hebraic spirit that um, uh, refines Hellenistic thought. Uh, Hellenistic thought at this time is at a dead end. Uh, let's not forget, which we mentioned earlier in the first part. It's at a dead end. It's done all it could do. It doesn't know what else to do. Christianity is going to come at the right time and refine it and give it an afterlife, an afterlife it never had. Um, for example, with Arianism uh, in the East, it's gone. <laughs> Hellenism and uh, you know Greek learning as we know, or Greek philosophy disappears very mm -hmm. fast. Um, it's unable to preserve it, refine it. Whereas uh, the Nicene uh, Christianity, for lack of a better term, um, understands the purpose and the point of learning and wisdom and knowledge, uh, which is that it must be pushed into eternity, always into into the eternal into the eternal posture, as opposed to simply the in the here and now. So uh, it preserves, but it also refines, and that's the gritty. That's part of the grittiness, isn't it? Uh, the diamond is refined by grittiness. Mm. You know that's how it's polished, um, and that grittiness is necessary for the polish. Otherwise, you don't have what Greek, you don't have the, the full potential of Greek philosophy uh, without Christianity. You have the dead end. Excellent. And uh, not dead ends, but speaking of ends, I think we've, um, we've, we've I think, laid out this topic very, um, well, very synoptically. We started with origins, sketched out Alexandria and its, its placement, got into our main man, uh, St. Alexander and, and Nicaea. And so the viewers will, of course, consult the first episode for the full, um, the full meal, so to speak. Uh, Nirmal, tell us about the, the postal and uh, maybe a special article or two that we can keep an eye out for this coming, um, you know, this happy summer here. Sure, yes. Um, like I you know, said, uh, we have an a, a August issue coming out dedicated to the memory of uh, Sir, Roger, Sir Roger Scruton. Um, as well, we have some various articles on Charles de Gaulle. Um, and I think you have one coming out as well. Why don't you talk about briefly about that very quickly? Sure thing. I, I'm writing uh, at, at what I see to be a very interesting period of, of change, and I get into where I might think things are. Um, and um, the ultimate topic is really youth and, and some of the happier qualities of that that we could use. I think, um, well, in art in general and in history in general, just in life, our personal lives and, and in communities, there's that concept of being tired. And um, these corona shutdowns have really, if we've been paying attention, you know, let us realize how tired this, this modern world is and... Um, 
whilst there are dangers ahead in terms of control structures um, taking advantage of these, I think that if we we emulate the um, uh, the best aspects of youth, and I, I mentioned certain saints from the summer and and certain incidents, um, I think that will give. Um, uh, things a good chance for a, a real good reset in terms of virtue. And, and just like a lot of things we've talked about, um, youth can be spiritualized too. You can be 80 years old and, um, uh, and embody these characteristics. So, um, so that's what I'm going to be uh, typing away at this weekend and finishing that up to get to your, to your, uh, your inbox. Excellent. That sounds wonderful. Great. Uh, so yes, that's the kind of thing we'll do. And I'll go again, if you go to the website, please join um, the, the, the mailing list. It's very important that we keep building our community. It's essential, especially uh, in the way the world is nowadays. Uh, community is very important. Uh, so please join the, the, the mailing list. Absolutely. This this rug, you like this YouTube, this bit shoot people, this rug can be pulled over. It's been a lot of people had it pulled out. Canada, I think you, there's a guy, I think he lives here, Dan Dix, lately, right. Um, right. many, many others. Um, e. Michael Jones, who I've yeah. interviewed before, Amazon just asked him. and yeah. So get on mailing lists. And I guess my plug for my Apocalypse of Stacey stuff is to do the same. Write me at Apocalypse of Stacey's Institute at AOL.com. People, build your defenses. And part of that is networking and community and getting on on um, these sorts of things and staying in touch and then acting on it. That's the most important. Yes, exactly. exactly. Um, the last uh, sign off here as regards this show, we'll, we'll probably do a special um, short video specifically on this in the autumn. But if any people are interested in, in being a, uh, a show beetle, uh, if in uh, donating time to get this epi these episodes up on the various platforms, on the social media and things, um, that's something to think about. And we'll make the, um, the pitch and, and this sort of thing a little bit later this year. But in terms of this show as an announcement, I would just say that. And you may write us at uh, christianhistoryandideas at gmail.com. Common, and that will be in the description of this video where you'll put all of your correspondence and questions and so forth when you're done emailing us and suggesting show topics. Thanks to the young reverend who uh, suggested this one. Um, we read those emails and we respond to them. So thanks so much. And thank you, Nirmal. Thank you, John. It was great to be here as always. All right, guys. Everyone take care now. Take care.